right, well, if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and open it to Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12. So if you're new with us, we started a series, uh, more of a, like a three-year three year series looking at uh, each section of Genesis. So we started on section one uh, last year uh, and worked our way through chapter 11, and now we're on section two of Genesis, and then we'll do section three in 2023. But this, this study will take us from chapter 12 all the way to chapter 25 of Genesis. And if you want to catch up on those, I think those are all online as well or on our podcasts, so you can, you can find those from last year. But Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20 is where we'll be today. So I'll read those verses for us. This is God's Word. Now there was a famine in the land... So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you again for your holy word for this opportunity to, uh, to, to, to dig into these, uh, these words uh, as a community. God, we pray that you would uh, give us ears to hear and help us to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. So just as, a, as another kind of summary overview of, of the book of Genesis, uh, the first 11 chapters of Genesis that we looked at last year that, that covers uh, uh, roughly about 2,000 plus years of, of history. So 2,000 years of history covered in 11 chapters. And then you have 14 chapters that cover the story of Abram and his family that covers about a 25-year span. So our author, the author of Genesis, is Moses. Moses is zooming in on this one, I mean, just an ultra zoom in as well. I mean, we are in his, we are in his bedroom. That's how zoomed in we are on this particular man and his family. And he does this to highlight the importance of this family to the story of redemption, of how God uses ordinary, broken people to bring about his good plan, which is a plan that ultimately finds its end in Christ. 
But while Abram is an important figure, a really important figure in the story of redemption, it doesn't make him a perfect figure. Which in all honesty, I think, should be quite encouraging to all of us. Because it means that there is, there is nothing in us or nothing about us that commends us to God. So we can stop playing the games that we like to play of trying to be a good person or do all these good deeds so that God will approve of us. There's nothing that we can do that, that can commend us to God. We don't have to dress ourselves up to get God's attention. Because we too, like, have our moments like Abram in our text this morning, where one day we are walking in obedience to the Lord's call, we're worshiping Him with joy and and reverence, and the next day we fall off the wagon. And sometimes that fall is hard. Think about the example of Peter in Matthew 16. I came across this chapter in my Bible reading this week, and in just a moment, Peter goes from affirming who Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, to in the next moment, denying Him. It goes from one moment Jesus is calling Peter the rock, and on Him, on this rock, I will build my church, and in the very next moment, Jesus is calling Him Satan. So we see this same sort of pattern in the life of Abram throughout his life. But what we see through this pattern, most importantly, is not how terrible Abram is, or how much of a sinner Abram is, but how great God is. And how committed God is to His promises, not only towards Abram, but also towards us. Last week we learned that true faith in God is a faith that obeys, an obedient faith. So you have Abram, who is our example of this. Abram from a pagan family. Abram who has this barren wife. She cannot have children. Uh, Here's God's command to get out of his homeland, to leave everything that's familiar and comfortable, and to go to a land that God will show him. He doesn't even know what land this is yet, because he's going to make him into a great nation. And Abraham demonstrates his faith in God through obedience. Abraham goes. And this week, we'll learn that this same faith is often a faith that is tested. And if we don't have our eyes constantly fixed on the one who calls us, we will put that same faith in jeopardy of being shipwrecked. And for that, Abram is also our model. And we'll see this play out in three ways in our text. And these are available in your worship guide. But three ways in our text we see this faith played out. One is through a misplaced faith. Two is through a faltering faith. And then three is through a restored faith. A misplaced faith, a faltering faith, and a restored faith. So first, a misplaced faith. Look at verse 10 again. Moses writes, Now there was a famine in the land, So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now this next section of Genesis echoes a pattern of going down to Egypt that shows up again and again in in Genesis, but you also see it throughout the entire Bible. So in Genesis chapter 39 verse 1, this may have been familiar to you, uh, Joseph 
will go down to Egypt. And then in Genesis chapter 43, verse 1, his brothers and his father eventually follow him to Egypt uh, because there's a famine in the land. Then you have in the book of Exodus, God's people are slaves in Egypt. And then even you have, jumping into the New Testament, Matthew chapter 2, where Jesus will go down to Egypt. Over and over again, we see Egypt as this important piece of, of God's plan. So Egypt in the Bible uh, typically meant it was a place of safety. So for you know, Jesus as an example of that, that Jesus uh, went to Egypt because it was a safe place to go at that particular time. But also Egypt is a place of testing for God's people. Overall, in biblical language, Egypt stands for the world and wrong allegiance with it. God's people, by and large, are, are warned to stay away from Egypt. In Isaiah chapter 31, verse 1, a very clear warning. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots, and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel, or seek help from the Lord. Yet here we have in our text, our man Abram headed straight to Egypt. And little does he know that the strong faith that we saw him, that we saw him have last week and demonstrate last week for us is about to be tested. And not only that, it also sets up this, this tension that is created by Abram through, through his assumptions. So we all know what, what assuming does, right? And I'll just give you the PG version. Uh, it makes a fool out of you and me. And I'll give you the rated R version afterwards if you want that. But assuming something about a, a person or a situation can cause your imagination to go wild with things that more than likely haven't happened, nor will they ever happen. Typically, we, when we assume, we assume worst-case scenario. It's usually death. And that's exactly what we see revving up here at the beginning of our text with Abram. Abram is in need because of a famine in the land, and then he heads to the place where provisions can be had. Egypt has always been a very rich nation, and Abraham goes there. So he, and then as he goes, he assumes several things as he does this, which leads him to make a foolish choice that could jeopardize jeopardized the promised blessing that we heard God give to Abram last week in our text. But it also reveals Abram's own lack of faith in God's promises, which we'll get to in our second point. For now, what we need to understand is what Abram has done wrong so that we're better able to see why God's intervention in the matter is so vital to God's people as a whole. So look at verses 11 through 13 again. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So the assumptions here are found in verse 12. 
So uh, Abram is essentially saying, look, if we go into Egypt as a married couple, the Egyptians are going to kill me and they're going to let you live and they're going to take you as another wife for Pharaoh. So in Abram's assumption, we're already seeing that he is doubting God's promises. So think about it. Why would God allow the man whom he just promised would make into a great nation, why would he allow this man to die? Why would he allow this man to have his wife taken from him in in Egypt? Is God smaller and weaker than Pharaoh? Surely if God promises to make you into a great nation, he will preserve your life in a famine. He will protect you from harm against the Egyptians. But that's not where Abram's heart was just yet. But we could also have this same idea going on where Abram is thinking about the promise. I'm sure the promise was still on his mind. And as is the pattern throughout the life of Abram, uh, Abram takes matters into his own hands and says, you know what? I will preserve my own life. I will make these plans. So he concocts this scheme that doesn't come from faith in God, but comes from faith in himself. So herein lies a danger for all of us, something that we can learn from from Abram. Because we live in a world that has, a, that has lied to us. We live in a world that says that true human flourishing and true life are found in self-actualization, self-preservation, and self-improvement. That's where true human flourishing comes from. That's where the good life comes from. That you are the center of the universe. That you are the master of your own domain. That when you get into trouble, it is up to you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and to provide for yourself and to preserve your own life. Have faith in yourself. But what what this really is, is a misplaced faith. It's a faith that is in yourself and not a faith that is in the God of the universe. You can see this in Abram's motivation for his scheme in verse 13. It has nothing to do with the Lord. Abram says uh, to to his wife, say you are my sister. Now, just a a side note here, and we'll get to this. Uh, Sarai actually was his sister. was his half-sister. Um, so, so Abram was thinking, you know, this isn't technically a lie. I, I'm telling the truth here. So, so, but Abram says this to his wife, Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So just a side note application here for those of you who are married or, or want to be married one day. Uh, Abram here is not demonstrating self-sacrificial love towards his wife. I hope that's obvious to you. Basically, what Abram has suggested to his wife, what he is proposing to Sarai, his beautiful wife, is that, hey, I'm going to sell you off as a sex slave to Pharaoh so that my life will ultimately be spared. So what Abram does here is he puts himself before his wife. So what Abram should have said 
What Abram should have said to his beautiful wife was, listen, Sarai, based on God's promises that we just heard, God will provide for us in this family. God will preserve our lives, and he will protect us from our enemies. But ultimately, this is not what Abram does. Much like our first parents, Adam and Eve, uh, he chooses to try and fulfill the promise of, promises of God apart from God or without God. And this then leads into the great possibility of Abraham's, or Abram's faith faltering, of him almost completely losing his faith. Because that's the natural outcome, isn't it? When we've misplaced our faith, or, or if you've placed your, your, your faith in yourself, you're placing your faith in something that is broken, inconsistent, and unreliable. At least for me it is. And the only natural outcome, the only place that leaves you is with a faith that is faltering, a faith that is wavering, a faith that is, that is being tossed to and fro by the ways of this world. Look at verses 14 through 16 for our second point. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 19 that Sarah read for us earlier, we have traced for us there Abram's steps of faith as he grew to trust God throughout his life. If you notice, none of these mishaps are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 about Abraham. That's God's grace in Abraham's life. None of them are mentioned. It's just how Abraham grew in his faith towards God. But here in Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20, we have not the steps of faith, but we have the steps of unfaith, which we can also learn. Abram did not end up in this situation on accident. He didn't stumble into these steps of unfaith either. He deliberately chose his steps and then walked in them. And the consequences of this, at least at this point in the story, are grim. They're not encouraging. And it's, it's here that we, we see Abram's plan backfire. Abram thought for sure, in his mind, he was assuming uh, that saying Sarai was his sister would keep them safe. Abram uh, it says, you know, if, if, if I say you're my sister then that's going to buy us some time. We'll be able to have what we need to be provided for through the famine. It'll buy us some time, and then we can get out of Egypt before anything happens uh, with a marriage to Pharaoh, and we can get out of there. Abraham assumed, or Abram assumed a negotiation process would take place that would drag out over some time, and, and, and he also assumed that Sarai would stay with him this entire time. But this turns out not to be the case at all. As Abram was dealing with people who had no need to negotiate, Abram was coming into their country, under their rules, into their land. And so as soon as they saw her, they whisked her away to Pharaoh. 
So Abram was right about something. He, he knew that his wife was beautiful. He knew that his wife uh, would, would stir up some attention amongst um, uh, 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 Pharaoh's uh, princes. He knew all of that was going to happen. He assumed right about that. But he assumed wrong about so many other things. And this is important because what's at stake here is not Abram's pride and not even Abram's marriage. What's at stake here is the fulfillment of God's promises. In, in a single instance, Abram goes from hearing God's wonderful promises of, I'm going to take you into a land, I'm going to make you into a great nation, all of these promises, to crashing into unbelief and jeopardizing everything that God has put into place. Because to not have Sarai, who is an important part of the story, is to not have the promise of a people. To not have his wife is to not have a great nation. Abram doesn't become Father Abraham without Sarai. So Jesus puts it this way in Matthew chapter, six, uh, Matthew chapter 16. Same principle here. Jesus says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, which Abram does, and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So in his attempt to save his own life, Abram risked losing his life. So once again in Genesis, through fear and disobedience, the intimacy of the man and the woman is broken. And that brokenness has the potential of affecting way more than just two people. It has the potential of, 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 of sending shockwaves all the way up into the 21st century right now for us. So once again, humanity is trying to walk apart from God's perfect and good plan. Once again, in the Scriptures, the line of the Messiah is threatened. But fortunately, at least this time, God does not intend for this threat to linger. He's faithful, as the New Testament says, even when we are faithless and will prevent this disaster that awaits Abram. And there's great hope in this because it means that he doesn't leave his children to go their own way indefinitely. That, that eventually God brings back those who are his. He brings them back to their senses and ultimately he brings them back to himself. Because God is the one who restores your faith. You don't restore your faith. God does that. And for this final point, look at verse 17 to begin with. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Now notice in this verse that it's God who holds up his end of the promise that he made to Abram back in verses 1 through 3. God even says, look, uh, those who dishonor you, those who are a threat toward you, those who are your enemies... I will curse them. 
I will bring curses upon them. And that's exactly what God does here in verse 17. He afflicts Pharaoh and his house with plagues, and it says, because of Sarai, Abram's wife. God does that. Here is the divine intervention that's needed. Here is is the plan that God had for Abram and Sarai all along. God makes the first move toward Abram and Sarai's rescue by bringing these plagues upon the Egyptians. It's not Abram. And this move on God's part exposes Abram's sin and also causes him to suffer uh, rebuke and humiliation. As one commentator said, what we witness here is not pretty, but the effects of sin are never pretty. And this is what we would call a severe mercy. A severe mercy that Abram experiences. And I'm sure some of you as a believer have experienced God's severe mercy. This, a severe mercy, is when your sin is exposed. And it's when your sin is exposed, not by yourself, but by somebody else. Maybe a brother or sister that, that, that rebukes you, that has seen a constant sin pattern in, in your life that you are missing, and they come to you and say, hey, I'm seeing this in your life, and they rebuke you for it. Or something, maybe it's a sin that you are wrestling with that you know is wrong, and eventually you are caught red-handed in that sin. That is a severe mercy from God. So you know the feeling when that happens of humiliation and even shame that comes with it. But you also know, hopefully you also know the, the, the relief and the hope that also comes with it as well. Because God in His mercy has freed you from the slavery of sin that has entangled you. He has freed you from something that has left you frozen. I mean, look at Abram. As far as we can tell, he is helpless to do anything. There are no altars built during this time. There there is no worship being had. It doesn't say anything about Abram calling upon the Lord. So no prayers are prayed. Which we have to mention again is 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 not is, is that and even because of that God intervenes even despite all of that God intervenes. Which reminds us again that there is nothing in Abraham that moves God. There is nothing in Abram that commends him to God. Obviously, in no way does anything in Abram's life or even Sarai's life, for that matter commend them to be rescued by God in this predicament. In a lot of ways, Abram uh, deserves what is happening to him. The prophet Ezekiel describes it this way. He describes the divine motivation of every time God rescues his people, this this is God's motivation for him rescuing his people. Ezekiel says, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. God rescues us according to who He is. He rescues us 
based on his character and his plan, not on who you are. Every time. And to be even more clear that his rescue is not based on who Abram is or who you are, but on his promise to bring about the snake crusher, the Messiah, through Abram's line. Paul highlights this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, where he makes specific what God means in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. So going back to what we looked at last week, when, when God says this simple phrase to Abram, to your offspring. Paul explains this. He opens up this for us. Paul says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So what we have transpiring here is not necessarily this great rescue of Abram and Sarai. That is happening. But what's ultimately happening is the preservation of the line of the Messiah. Nothing can frustrate God's plan of redemption. No sin you commit. No no militant atheist, no matter how smart they are, how clever they think they are. Not even persecution can stop the plan of redemption in, in Christ from marching forward. The fact that we're gathered here today as a worshiping body of believers is a fact for that reality. Now notice in these final verses of our text how God chooses to restore Abram's faith in verses 18 through 20. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So an interesting situation here. God does not come to to, to Abram personally. God doesn't speak to him like he did last week when he was giving him the promises. God sends a pagan king to rebuke him and to humiliate him. Now, isn't it worse as a Christian when you are called out on your sin? It's, it's okay. I mean, it's, it hurts when a brother or sister does it to you. But when a non-Christian calls you out on your sin, especially when they're right, especially when they they, they call you out on your hypocrisy. Maybe you're one that that is walking around and quoting the scriptures to people and sharing the gospel with people at work or at school and, and, and your life looks completely different than what you're preaching to your coworkers and classmates. And one day they just had enough and they just call you out. Isn't that worse? And this should be a warning to us. To be careful to live lives that are above reproach. Not perfect lives. I think that's probably the, the greatest witness that you, can, that you can put before non-Christians is to be someone who is honest about their sin and repenting constantly. Showing your dependence upon a Savior who rescues. 
but to live lives that, that, that don't bring uh, shame and scorn upon the gospel. Or you too may find yourself in a similar situation as Abram here. And so just like Abram was told by God back in verse 1 of chapter 12 to get out of his own country, uh, Pharaoh comes and tells him to get out of Egypt. And just like Abram obeyed God, he obeys Pharaoh. But this time it's like a dog with his tail between his legs and he goes back home. So ultimately what we learn from this is Abram's faith was tested and Abram failed the test. In several places in the New Testament, the reality of your faith being tested is talked about. And the way it's talked about is not in some hypothetical way either. So it's not, the New Testament is not, or the Bible is not saying, if your faith is tested, then here's what you do. So some of you may have tested faith, some of you may not. So if it's tested, this is what you do. Now the way the Bible talks to, uh, to, to believers about their faith is very concrete. It says, your faith, Christian, will be tested. It will be tested. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12-13. through 13. Peter says to the church, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. The trials will come and the trials will test you. Don't be surprised by them. As though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. How well are you doing under these tests? Are you surprised when the fiery trial comes? Are you passing the test that God is placing before you? As one preacher commented on this text, he said, Like a coin that has a head and a tail, every event in life, every event in life, can either draw us to God or draw us away from God. Every event in life. So the question is, are you being drawn toward God? Are you passing the test? Or are you being drawn away from Him? If you feel distance right now in your walk with Jesus, uh, if you feel distance from, from God, you are probably being drawn away from Him. But if you feel a closeness, you are probably drawn, you're being drawn towards Him. You are seeking Him in His Word. You are, you, are at, you are talking to Him in prayer. You are fellowshipping with Him uh, amongst other believers. couple of biblical examples in, in, in the account of the parable of the seeds. I think this is like the third time in a row that I've quoted from the parable of the seeds, but it's such an important parable that Jesus gives. But in Luke chapter 8, uh, he describes one who falls away from the faith, and he falls away from the faith after being tested. He writes Jesus' words, and the seeds that were sown on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, so they start really well. They are joyful about what they've heard about the gospel, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. 
They fail the test. Then in James chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, you have the opposite happening. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Paul reminds us that faith comes from hearing and faith comes from the word of Christ. That is where our faith lies. So like Abram, you, have, you always have two choices laying before you. One that will lead you away from God and the other that leads you closer to Him. But you also, like Abram, have the God of the universe as a believer. You have the God of the universe on your side, steering you toward that which is good for you and ultimately for His glory. Let's pray. Father, even in a uh, grim part of this story of redemption, we still find hope. We still find the hope of the gospel uh, because we find you here uh, actively at work in your good providence, um, working out your good plans in Abram and Sarai's life, even when they don't deserve it which reminds us that you are continuing to do your good work of providence in our life, even when we don't deserve it. What a grace that is towards us. God, help us to not live um, uh, by putting our faith in ourselves, but always to live uh, putting our faith uh, in the one who is always faithful, in Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.